The debate rolls on. Is remote and teleworking good for productivity and team performance? There's no clear answer, but some fresh research on how people feel about team performance gives a slight edge to yes, things have improved in the last two years. We get more now from the Director of Client Solutions at Eagle Hill Consulting, Andrew Edelson. Mr. Edelson, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. Tell us what you were looking at here exactly across, I guess, we'll get into the government-specific data, but what were you looking at generally, and what was the methodology to come up with these answers? We, we all know the pandemic was, was nothing short of transformational to the government workforce. It accelerating in many ways, what what employees have long desired, the opportunity to get to work in a more flexible, agile environment. And as you teed up, the challenge or the question is, does that mean it's better or less better from a productivity perspective? And what we've seen, and contrary to some of the traditional thoughts of, of remote work, is that we're seeing that productivity has, or at least in the government employees' eyes, gone up. So according to the survey that we, we've conducted, government employees told us that teleworking has improved team performance and individual performance. So about half of government employees who telework, both fully remote and hybrid, say their team performance improved during the past two years. What's also interesting on the other side is only a third of those government workers who were in person say that their team's performance is improved during that same period. Well, what does that mean then? If the people generally that are teleworking say things are better, the people that are not teleworking generally say maybe not so much. What can we really conclude from that? While the way we work has transformed, the way we manage people has not necessarily kept pace, which is one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of these challenges here. Right. So if you think about the old way that uh, that management, in, especially in the, in the public sector, is operated, is the, is, is the walking hall approach. And I was just as guilty when I used to work in the federal government. Supervisors stopping by a cubicle to check in and monitor work. Now, one of the main reasons why supervisors were reluctant to prove telework in the old operating environment was because if they believed if you weren't at your desk, you couldn't be working. Right. And so one of the challenges we're seeing here, what's interesting, as in this environment, the workers are getting a whole lot more flexibility in terms of how to get work done, when to get work done and how to operate in the balance of a work life. I should say, however, that this this balance and workplace flexibility is sort of a, a double edged sword. What we're seeing is that burnout overall is substantially higher for the government workforce, especially as compared to the private sector, where we're seeing two thirds of the government employees are saying that they're burned out compared to less than half of their private sector counterparts. So the big challenge here and when it comes to productivity is that burnout is a one-two punch to productivity because not only do you have people who are burned out in the workplace, but when they leave, what happens because the mission doesn't change, the mission doesn't go away, is the remaining workforce has to pick up the slack so then the burnout continues. Given the government data, how does that compare with the private sector, the overall data? That is, in the private sector, do people also generally feel that teleworking has improved things? Generally speaking, yes. The big challenge or the big difference, I should say, not challenge, is that in the private sector, the the concept of flexible work has been in motion and been growing for some time. So the ability to work remotely, the ability to travel, the ability to be much more flexible has been in place. Unfortunately or fortunately, during COVID, it, that was the real catalyst that, that forced the shakeup in, in the public sector. And just to be clear, this was derived from a survey instrument. Correct. The findings are based on Eagle Hill's performance management and feedback survey uh, of this past year, where we conducted it earlier uh, this summer. 
This is a nationally representative survey of about a thousand adults in across the U.S. aged 18 and older who are employed full or part time, including those who work for a government agency. What we also did so that we can look at government data is we oversampled the government workforce so that we could break that down further. We're speaking with Andrew Edelson. He's director of client solutions at Eagle Hill Consulting. A couple of questions. People's perceptions are, yes, my team performance improved. You know, in business, it's a very easy to measure productivity. It's a ratio of inputs to outputs. And so you can tell if the economy is more productive or not by how many people are working, what the output is. That's difficult to measure in the public sector. So do you get the sense, and maybe this is outside the scope of the study, that people actually know whether they're more productive or not? That's a great question. And again, going back to that example of of management by walking around or walking the halls versus remote, this is challenging the way that the government supervisor, the government manager has traditionally operated. When I was in the federal government, what I saw a lot of was you would promote great doers into a manager role and expect them to be a senior doer, not a manager of people. And one of the challenges we're seeing here, especially in a hybrid or remote operating environment, is it changes the way that they need to manage and lead people. Less around task management and more around results-oriented work. So less inputs and more about outcomes. Now, when we see that doing well in both the public and private sector, accountability and performance both go up. The challenge is being able to set the right outcome-related or results-related metrics rather than are you at your desk, do I see you doing your thing, versus are you getting the right mission result. And productivity seems to be, by one measure, again, it's a rough measure, somewhat divorced from job satisfaction. If you look at the best places to work in the federal government scores, which I'm sure you've read, they went down. So maybe people are working their butts off, but not liking it as much. That's the challenge, right? So the mission doesn't go away just because we're in a remote space or remote operating environment. If anything, it goes up. And with a flat workforce and increasing needs, the workload has gone up. So the challenge, again, for managers is how you effectively manage that workload. That has to do with setting boundaries or using people's times more effectively. So as a manager, how do you effectively prioritize people's work, be judicious about how and when you engage them, and also give them the flexibility to do what they need to do when they need to do it? Lots of implications here. Then what should federal managers who look at the survey take away from it, and what should they possibly enact as practices then do you think i think you've named a few yes i think there's a balance of what supervisors need to be doing and what organizations need to be doing and collectively agencies need to prioritize how they can equip to be better managers and developers of people to focus less on the inputs or the walking the halls and more around the results and the outcome this means better planning taking time to actually outline outcomes and results that they need and expectations from teams better understanding of how to lead and manage teams and workloads and competing priorities. So that means some homework on the part of managers, because when you really sit down and think about what are your expectations, that's not such a simple exercise. No, it's very complicated and it's difficult. And and quite honestly, if you also look at how agencies look at measuring performance, they say in supervisor expectations that they evaluate supervisors' abilities to develop and manage and lead others. However, as you see, the accountability in a large scale is almost never appropriately executed. And you can see that through performance management data from OPM, where 
most of the workforce, including supervisors and executives in particular, are rated excellently or outstanding. Andrew Edelson is Director of Client Solutions at Eagle Hill Consulting. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together. Because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 
This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup, so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.